Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Philippians, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Hi, New Hope. It's great to see you all. So I just want to welcome uh, many visitors who are here, and um, uh, thank you for coming today to worship with us. It's so good to see you all. And again, um, it's great to see everyone who's here, and it's great to be with everyone who's on, online. Um, I'm Robert. I'm one of the elders at New Hope, and today I have the privilege of standing before you to preach from the book of Philippians, uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, which Kathy just read. Uh, these verses uh, are filled with meaning and instruction from Paul to the Philippian church about the love and humility that are needed in the church in Philippi to hold together in faith against the forces of persecution from outside the church and also from the dangers of conflict faced within the church. So I hope we will see that this message applies to us as well. I'll be focusing most of my message on the first five verses and the themes of unity in the church and humility. I'm also trying to consider uh, three questions which uh, the Apostle Paul answers. And these questions are, uh, why should we strive for unity in the church? Second question, what should we do to pursue unity? And then finally, what is the key to our realizing unity? So let's pray together before I begin. Father, we thank you for your word, which the Apostle Paul speaks to us in these verses, coming from our Lord's humility. 
and meant for the ears and hearts of the saints in Philippi and for us today. Lord, help us to receive this message well. I pray that it will bear good fruit in our lives and for the life of our church. In Jesus' name we pray. So as I've been reading through uh, the book of uh, Philippians over the weeks and preparing for this sermon, um, I found myself wanting to know more about the Apostle Paul, particularly his, what his life might have been like when he was in Rome at the time he's writing this letter. He was also writing around the same time the letter to the Ephesians and Colossians and also the, the letter of Philemon. And at the same time, also wondering about the people in Philippi um, who are at a distance of about maybe a, a thousand miles from Paul, maintaining their relationship with him. And what, what was their life like as they persevered in the, in the faith together? Um, at the same time, it has occurred to me, uh, reading about this church, that there are similarities, I think, between the church in Philippi and our church here in New Hope. Both churches have a strong foundation in the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Both are made up of people devoted to living out their faith with a spirit of compassion, generosity, and love to one another. Both have enjoyed the fruits of unity, both spiritual and relational unity, and both struggle against sinful desires that threaten their joy and unity. So before I really get into the verses, I'd like to just do a little bit of historical background. I, it's not really found in the verses that we're reading today, but um, I, I just I found it so fascinating to read about Paul and sort of the circumstances of his being in, in Rome and what, we, what we're pretty sure we know about his being in Rome. So um, it's probably around 62 AD that, that Paul was in Rome. He's under military custody. And if you remember from the book of Acts, this is the result of an appeal he made in Caesarea to the Roman governor Festus, who was, who was offering Paul to be sent back to Jerusalem to be tried for crimes that were never really established. And if that had happened, then Paul would have been tried in the midst of the Jewish authorities who had already tried to assassinate him. Um, Paul claimed his right to appeal to the Roman emperor, which he could do by an ancient tradition, and Festus had to agree. So, so Paul then ends up in Rome as a result of that appeal. I think it's important, though, to realize that Paul is not, his intention for going to Rome is not to escape death at the hands of the Jewish authorities, and we know that because in Acts 23.11, this is going back to the time when he was in Jerusalem, probably three years before, at least three years before he went to Rome, the Lord appeared to Paul before he went to Caesarea, and the Lord said to Paul, take, take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. And, and this to me has a really important meaning for what Paul is doing in Rome besides writing these wonderful epistles, that, that he actually is testifying about the facts of Jesus for everybody around him. 
people who were physically the closest to Paul in Rome, literally chained to him by the wrist 24 hours a day, were his guards. And these guards were of the Imperial Guard. They were probably the most powerful, ambitious, dangerous men of the age. Of the age. They were the emperor's bodyguards. They were also several of the emperor, emperor's assassins. They've been uh, described as sort of like a combination of Navy SEALs, um, secret police, many other functions. Uh, they were people who had direct influence on who became emperor. They, they were the sort of within the Senate, they were known as sort of the kingmakers. And they had great ambitions. They're already, they had higher pay, 16 years and they could retire. And that could have meant anything. The sky could have been the limit for some of them. These are the men who heard every word Paul said, who probably may have even heard him dictating the letter to the, to the Philippians to a Christian brother who then would carry the letter back to Philippi. They were, they were there. They were four-hour shifts chained to him. And so we do see that if we look at verses from Philippians 1, 13 to 14, that even these incredibly ambitious men within Rome are affected. And, and Philippians 1, 13 to 14 reads, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And then as an encouragement to the other Christians in Rome, and most of the brothers having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. And we also see in Philippians 4.22, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. We don't know much about individuals who may have been converted, but clearly Paul's ministry was having an effect in Rome. So with this background about Paul's boldness of heart and mind and also his obedience to Jesus, let's turn to the first question I have about his message of unity, and that's to discover how Paul is showing the Philippians and us the, the importance of church unity. So let's look at the first verses of Philippians 2, keeping in mind this question of the importance of unity. And I think that will be rejected. And then within these verses, I'll just read verses 1 and 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one, of one mind. And I think we see very clearly the theme of unity in verse 2. Having the same, have, being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So there it is in verse 2, the theme of unity. But what are the reasons that's important to have that unity. And I think we find three answers or three reasons in these verses, actually in verse one and two, but also going back to the last verses of chapter one. I think we have that on the screen that 
should have four verses, verses 29 and 30 from chapter 1, and then verses 1 and 2 from chapter 2. And we know to look back to 29 and 30 because verse 1 starts with the word so. So it has to be so what? I mean, something has to lead to so. And, and what is that? So if we look at verses 29 and 30, what we see is, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So those verses are talking about their suffering. The Philippians and Paul's suffering, that we can see as first reason for needing unity. So it's something like, I can find my notes. Something like, if we read it this way, Paul has been telling the Philippians that his partners in the gospel for Christ, they and he must be ready to suffer. They are called to both belief and suffering and they're going to bear their suffering better if they're united. I think that's basically the message. So we're, we're called to suffer. There's even a joy in suffering. But if we stay together, if we stay united, we will be able to bear the suffering more. I think that's where we see this, this first reason, going back to the verses of chapter 1. If we look at, if we look for the, the second and the third reasons, reasons then we find it in, in verses 1 and 2. And we want to look at verse 1 now. And when we look at verse 1, let's just pay a little bit of attention to the first words, so, if, there. Okay, well, we've looked at so, but so, if, there is. Now, the word if, commentators usually say, really means since or because. You have to read it a little bit differently. In other words, what follows, encouragement in Christ, comfort from love, participation in the Spirit, affection, sympathy, are given. These are things that the Philippians and believers already have. They've already received this from Christ, in some sense from each other, too, in their unity. So if we read it that way, since there is encouragement in Christ, comfort, love, compassion, spirit, affection, sympathy, then we can read that same unity as following. If there are these things, then be of the same mind, or, or be of the same mind, have the same love, be of according to one mind. Because those things, those incredible gifts they've received from Jesus are motivation. They should, be, they should be motivation, they should come out of inspiration, gratitude. Look at all these things we've been given in Christ. Doesn't that make us want to stay together? We received these things while we were together. So it's kind of, it's a reason for, for unity. I've skipped over a little bit, I just want to go back. I just want to go back to the point about suffering and think about the bigger picture of suffering for the Philippians and for Paul. Just a review, including what we know from chapter 1, is that the suffering that Paul speaks of comes from both outside and inside 
the church. The outside physical threats are very clear. The church in Philippi was persecuted church under Roman authority. Philippi was a, a Roman colony, a kind of mini Rome. And the authorities were hostile to the Christian faith. And Paul in Rome, suffering in chains, facing the judgment of the emperor, as we talked before, possible, possible execution, if that's what Nero decides. But there's also the suffering from inside the church, which is more the focus of Paul's letter. And for Paul, that suffering has been the attacks of selfish, divisive preachers, actually so-called leaders of Christian leaders in Rome. And so if we look back to chapter one again, we read, some indeed preach, preach, preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my, punish, in my imprisonment. So despite the fact that Paul is actually, he's actually saying he rejoices in the proclamation of Christ under any circumstances, he's still suffering. He's suffering this division of the church caused by people who are actually preaching out of selfish ambition, conceit, rivalry. If we're looking at the internal suffering for the Philippian church, for them, Paul has received word from a man called Epaphroditus, who was a messenger from Philippi. He had come out to Rome to give Paul gifts of money to sustain him. And he's also brought word to Paul about conflict in the church in Philippi. There's divisiveness there. And that conflict, we don't do too much about it, but we know that at least two people in the church are in conflict. And that message comes to Paul and so we know that the church in Philippi is suffering of this internal conflict, possibly from original members of the church. And this calls for a response of the church in Paul's exhortation to bring about reconciliation, healing, a restoration of peace and unity. So I've gone back to the theme of suffering, but I also want to mention that as suffering was real for this good church in Philippi, it's also true for our church today. As we know, there, there are many who have experienced and are still experiencing suffering in our church of all kinds. It may not be the kind of persecution that, that the Philippians and Paul were facing, but there is suffering that we can bear together. It's caused by illness, physical pain, financial struggles, discord among family members, fear, loss, other anxieties. All these are real and present in our church. And a great danger of suffering is that for many is that we, it causes us to withdraw into ourselves, away from those who together as Christ church are called to help. So as we think about the importance of our unity, 
we can ask ourselves, how can we be a church that responds to one another's needs, shepherds and disciples, others, that encourages and is present for one another and that prays for one another? And this too is part of our, the importance of our striving together in unity. I sort of went ahead and came back, so I want to turn back again to that second reason, which is the encouragement in Christ as a reason for us to stay um, unified. There's a third reason in these verses, and this one is very clear in verse 2. This is the one that's, that stands out the easiest, and it says, Paul is basically saying, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, and being in full accord of one mind. So Paul is saying, stay together, stay unified, that completes my joy. The, the book of Philippians is sometimes called the most joyful book in the Bible. Paul makes at least 16 references to joy or rejoicing within the span of a 104 verses. He, he talks about his greatest joy, which is Christ. But he also says very clearly that his joy are the Philippian people themselves. He calls them his crown and joy. And the only, really, the only thing I want to add to that thought is that this joy is really not only for Paul. I mean, the joy of unity is everyone's joy. Every, everyone who, who is, in, is in the church and enjoying the unity of the church. I think we could imagine, um, as we understand from these verses, the entire letter to the Philippians, Paul knows it's not easy to stand firm together. It's not easy not to lose heart. So again, he's, he's asking them to be strengthened. We can almost hear Paul saying to the Philippians in this letter, recalling the time when he was actually with them years before, remember, brothers and sisters, Remember when we stood together in the midst of persecution 10 years ago? And God delivered me and Silas from prison, and then we planted this church down by the river in Philippi. Remember with thankful hearts, and let our gratitude for all we have received from Jesus be our reason for standing together now. So once again, I think we can see Paul's message certainly apply to us. If ever we find ourselves drifting away from fellowship of one another at this church, if we feel ourselves being pulled into isolation by our own anxiety, guilt, illness, anger, disappointment, sadness, let's also remember that we have received much strength in Christ and our church community in the past and be encouraged that we're receiving that strength now through the Holy Spirit. And, and within, our, within our church, we receive this 
the strength from our youth group leaders, our teachers for our young people, within our care groups, our discipleship groups, through the teaching of our elders, through the service of our deacons, other ministry leaders, and, and really from many unseen and unnamed brothers and sisters who humbly reach out, serve and pray for others every day. So let's remember this unity that we have it's reflected in service, faithful service with thankfulness. Let's be thankful for the comfort we have received from Jesus through one another and stay together. That's the second reason Paul gives for striving for unity. Okay, and, and I, I just wanted to go back and say a little more about that. Now let me move to just the second reason um, that I brought up in the beginning about unity. That second reason is, what should we do to pursue unity? So really, really the answer, again, to pursue unity is not to resign ourselves to feelings of separation from one another and from God. And, and really, that, separ that, that feelings of separation goes back to thinking of just ourself rather than the body. If we have an attitude of mind of self, then we will not have unity. We will not share the mind and the love and the harmony expressed in verse 2. So Paul gives us instructions for moving away from the self toward God and others, and these instructions are announced in verses 3 and 4. So let's read those verses again, which I think we'll see on the, on the screen. So verses 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. So as we see from these verses, the meanings are really very clear. And we also want to note the seriousness of Paul's instructions. And we see that in other scripture. We see it in the book of James in verse 316, where James says, for where jealousy and self-ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. Verse 3 tells us we should not seek personal gain at the expense of others. We should not have an attitude of superiority, a mind that's puffed up with conceit. If we do, we will only be able to serve ourselves. And our hope of unity in the church, in our relationships with others, where we need one another's help, will be lost. But can we leave behind our idols of ambition, rivalry, and conceit long enough to serve one another's needs? The, I, I think social media comes to mind. I know I'm not the first person to notice that for some Christians, engagement, social media threatens to fuel the idols of our hearts. Some of us might be particularly susceptible to taking part in the controversies on social media, even with other Christians. 
And I, I think this was the second pandemic of last year, particularly before the election, where, where a hostile exchange of opinions became quite normal. We should keep in mind that Paul is telling us that even in the preaching of Christ, attitudes of envy, rivalry, selfish ambition exist, and they afflict others with suffering. They divide the church. Are we all about competing with and outperforming the opposition in the online arena? Or can we let go of our ambition and conceit and focus on serving others in humility with words and attitudes that point them to Christ, as Paul did in his letter and in his witness to his neighbors in Rome? Was Paul also ambitious? Well, yes, in a way, you could say it's fair to say he was, but he was not selfishly ambitious. Paul's ambition was godly. It was out of obedience to Christ, complete devotion, and for the purpose of glorifying God. Can we say that ours is too? Once again, if we are able to count others more significant than ourselves in the sense of bearing with people who have opposing attitudes, even their hostility towards us, then we will be able to look to the interests of others. So let's now turn to verse 4 and read what Paul says. So in verse 4, Paul says, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. The interests of others. So when I read this, it was like a flurry of applications came into my mind, where the interests of others are not put first. And, and just to mention, as one writer for the Gospel Coalition Call, Gospel Coalition calls self-interest, calls it the sins of self-importance, which take over our attitudes and decisions. So again, very, very quickly, in a matter of minutes, I was able to think of three that apply to myself. Number one, at work. I check the dates of my own vacation plans before I approve the leave requests of the people who report to me. There's nothing in the HR handbook that gives me any guidance about that. And my boss does the same as I do. Number two, at home, when my wife asks me for help to do something, my mind immediately jumps to the task that I had already planned to do first, my task. It's as though my schedule had already been fixed in my mind, and her task would need to be squeezed in as an unscheduled appointment. Number three, when I look through my emails and texts or missed calls, I'm tempted to consider who to respond to first based on how much I value their opinions of me. How I tend to value others and their needs becomes a barrier to my ability and even my desire to serve others. Paul is calling upon us to think of others as more important than ourselves, 
which he tells us is possible in humility. And so we might ask, what's really at stake if we do not commit ourselves to having this mind of humility? And Paul tells us in verse 5, he tells us that, that sorry, I'm just going to go back and read verse 5 completely. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ, in Christ Jesus. So what's at stake is this mind that, of humility. It's Christ's humility. But first, let's think a little more about the meaning of looking to others' interests. What if there's more to the meaning of interest than usually comes to mind? After all, interest sounds pretty light, like interests in movies or interests in music or other things that we can be flexible, flexible about if it comes down to making choices together. We can negotiate those kind of interests. But according to John Piper, the meaning of interests in this verse, in the original, is open-ended. So Piper says in the original, the word is just a filler. Let each of you look not only to his own something, but also to the something of others. And that something could actually be something very important. It could be anything. That something could be the other person's financial well-being. It could be their health. It could even be their life. So when Epaphroditus set out on a two-month journey from Philippi to Rome to bring Paul the money he desperately needed to sustain himself during his imprisonment in Rome and almost died on the way, he was willing to risk his interests, and in this case, even his life, for Paul's needs, which moved Paul greatly. So John Piper points out that this way or the, or the way we should think about verse 4 is to understand it is, as the words of Jesus in Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine: 39, love your neighbor as you love yourself. The deeper meaning of looking out for someone's interests is to really look out for that person, as in being ready to serve that person out of love. The Bible gives us countless verses to meditate on, related to growing in God's word so that we may live out our faith together as brothers and sisters in Christ, serving each other's needs. So to name a few, Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. Second Peter 3.18, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4.13, attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. In Ephesians 4, verses 2 and 3, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So keeping in mind Paul's instructions in the verses we just read, verses 3 and 4, 
And in particular, this last verse from Ephesians, I'm reminded of a great book that the elders and deacons here at New Hope have been reading together. I meant to bring that book up here, and I didn't. The book is called Saints, Sufferers, and Sinners by Michael Emlet. And I'd just like to read from this book a few ways the author says we can follow Paul's approach to, the, to other saints in our midst. So here are a few. One, remind them of their destiny in Christ and the faithfulness of God in that journey. And another, communicate your love for them and God's love for them. And another, highlight the good that you see. And finally, thank God for them in prayer. And one more, which is specifically addressed to husbands and wives. Notice where the spirit, where the spirit is at work in your spouse and speak it out loud. So now I'd like to turn to a third question. And the third question is, what is the key to our realizing greater unity? So all of these ways of approaching one another, of caring for one another's interests in love can be of value for achieving unity. But the key for realizing the fulfillment of growing together in Christ is expressed by Paul in verse 5. Going back to verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And this mind... This mind of Jesus, as I think we've already realized, is expressed back in verse 3, where Paul tells us is one of humility. You look at verse 3, there it is. Do these things in humility. When I was a, when I was a kid, when I was, when I was growing up, I had a good friend for about seven years from before middle school, all through high school. A really good friend, very smart guy, easy to get along with, decent with everyone. I never really saw him engaged in any kind of confrontation with anyone. And he and I never had any argument, as I can remember. His parents were very strict, but we managed to do some daring things. We had some adventures. Toward the end of our high school years, I noticed he was becoming very anxious. I knew he was experiencing some serious pressures, including the pressure of his stepfather, which led to something pretty terrible later. Um, who insisted that he be perfect. In the last semester of high school, he just started looking very angry. I saw that his attitude, toward, even toward me, started to change. I was, con I was confused. Um, after graduation, during that summer, he reached out to me once, but I really couldn't understand what he was going through. And after that summer, we lost touch, and I never saw him again. 28 years later, his phone rang, and it was him. It was time. Even before we caught up in our lives, he told me these things. He thanked me for my friendship when we were young. 
He said he was sorry for what had happened at the end of our time in high school. He thanked me for my parents and my brother who had been good to him. He told me he loved me. And he remembered something I had done for him, even what I had said at that time, which I had forgotten. And the effect that that call, that call had on me at that time in my life when I had not come to know Christ was to make me feel restored some way. And I thought about the impact that his call had me, call had on me in time, and I realized it was because what he had done was to remember something good in me, which I had long forgotten, and, and maybe even thought was no longer there. I've wondered why he assumed that that good that he remembered was still there, or if that even really mattered. I didn't ask him at the time what made him cross the divide 28 years to reach out to me. And it was actually years later that I learned that he had become a Christian. I tell you this story because it is one of the times in my life when I've received this particular kind of gift that I've come to understand as an act of humility. And there's nothing like that experience. I think you know, if you remember moments in your lives when you have experienced someone's kindness or generosity, or they're asking for accepting forgiveness, those moments of reconciliation when someone reached out to you or received your efforts to restore your relationship, and you knew it wasn't easy to do, there was a heart cost involved. It is this kind of commitment to live together in humility, I believe, that we need to realize lasting unity. And that Paul is calling for the Philippians to seek out and to cherish. It's important for our own hearts. It's important for our relationships. It's crucial for the unity of the church. But there's possibly an even greater reason that our unity with one another matters. And that's because our unity with one another as believers is also our unity in Christ. So again, as we see this meaning in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. In John 13, verses 20 to 21, Jesus prays, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And I wonder if this truth of unity came to Paul's mind, or, or maybe he later realized that when he first heard Jesus' voice at the moment of his conversion on the Damascus Road, and Jesus said to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. And Paul would have known that those words told of Jesus' union with those, with those Saul had actually been persecuting, 
the followers of Jesus, and yet Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? According to John Piper, we can understand that the Holy Spirit is the source of our spiritual unity. As we see in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 1, in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. The model for humility, however, is Jesus, which Paul is showing us in verses 6 through 11, so the final verses of our text today. And just as a side note, these verses are actually very commonly considered a hymn, although no one knows whether it's a hymn that Paul wrote himself or adopted for this letter. So let's read these verses, but starting from verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself, by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father, these verses, this hymn, tell us the story of Christ's humiliation and exaltation, of his lowering himself to the lowest place and of his being exalted to the highest place. And it is, is in this narrative of the incarnation, humiliation, and exaltation of Christ, verses 6 through 11, that we see the mind of Christ which we in our unity in one mind should worship and serve together. To be of one mind as believers, as followers of Christ, we have to turn our minds away from our own ambitions and our own false glory. As one commentator wrote, as long as Christians have the attitude that what matters most is self-fulfillment and self-advancement, they will never experience the unity of one mind. <clears throat> to my understanding, this makes sense. If by our own conceit, our vain, empty glory, we have exalted ourselves in our own minds, we've raised ourselves up, then we will miss the heart of Jesus who has lowered himself in humility to where we truly are. The Scottish theologian and pastor Sinclair Ferguson said, the heart of the natural man wants to see Christ kept on the cross, demeaned and always failing. And now as we read verses 6 through 11, we understand that that heart, which believes that Jesus has not risen, is hardened to the profound truth of Christ's humility his death on a cross, his resurrection, 
and his exaltation. And how does that hardened heart make us feel? Are we ready to do battle, fight to defend our Lord? But there's another response, and this is the one we need. It is the one that our unhardened hearts will lead us to, which is to imitate our Lord's humility, extend his grace and love to others, have this mind among ourselves, which is ours in Christ Jesus. And with this unity in one another in him, let's remember, New Hope, what it is that completes our joy, the incomparable goodness, the humility of our Savior. In closing, I think sometimes of our reality before we truly accept his grace, like those accounts of people trapped deep in caves, such as those 12 boys in Thailand, you may remember a couple of years ago, helpless, waiting in the darkness. And then we imagine the feeling when the rescuer's light appears, and there's the joy and gratitude of being saved. For those here who may not know Christ, we want to pray for your hearts to be moved today, that you will place your hope and trust in Jesus who died for your sins and was raised up again to rescue you from darkness and reconcile you to God. This is the gospel of Christ. Let's pray. Father, we praise you and thank you for this church, for this time we have had today to worship together and read and reflect on your word. We thank you for your grace and goodness in our lives, Lord. Help us to grow in humility, become more like you in one mind, as brothers and sisters in Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.